because it's hard for somebody to know what your business is worth because we're talking about a financial transaction. So you have to agree on a price. And if in your head you say, my business is worth $10 million, it may be or it may not be. And without some sort of financials to back it up so you can share those readily with a potential buyer, um, you're probably not going to get the price you want. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, man, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Woohoo! Yes, yes. Got a question for you. All righty. Outside of a themed attraction, have you ever seen a whale? Um, I have to think about that one. Have I ever seen a whale? I, I actually don't know if I have. I've seen okay. dolphins in Florida. Yeah. Recently saw a whole bunch of seals in Cape Cod, which was awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a whale in the wild. Have what you ever I been? Um, I have. Um on a whale watching tour, um, I happened to see one, um, but I've also seen sea lions and, and dolphins and things like that. Um, actually, one time my wife and I were kayaking and a dolphin was like right next to us on the river in Florida. So that was that was pretty cool. Um, but I'm asking because, you know, sometimes when people go on whale watching tours, they don't see a whale. Even though it's called a whale watching tour? Imagine that. Imagine that. I know. But we're counting. the whales don't just show up. Don't, right? they, don't they show up just like <laughs> they do when you go to SeaWorld? You can count on them at two o'clock, at four o'clock to to show up. <laughs> I just I just picture those old games where they have the things that go around in a circle and you got to shoot it as it comes up. Like they've got the whale on the on this big turntable thing that comes up. No, that's not how it works at all. Um, and nor we should. Nor should it. Uh, we get to, to talk today um, to Trish Higgins, who operates a number of different boat tours and also is a partner of a company called Chenmark. She'll tell you where that name came from. Um, and one of the things that they do are whale watching tours. And we talk a little bit about that. But moreover, we talk about the process of buying and selling businesses. We talk about kind of the emotional impact that has and sometimes the emotional toll that that takes and she's really got a lot of great advice for people who may be in the later years of owning a business and they're wondering sort of what is my next step am i going to retire am i going to sell my business she's got a lot of really great advice on that mm -hmm. yeah and this is just such a fascinating conversation i mean we we get really deep in the weeds of 
of what it's like for those transactions. And like you said, the, the emotional impact for, for people really turning over the keys to, to their baby, something that maybe they've, they've built over the last 20 to 30 years and the employees that are impacted uh, by it and uh, really you know weaving their way into, into a new guest experience that perhaps uh, they weren't familiar with prior to, to coming into the, the tourism industry. So uh, their boat tours under the Chenmark uh, parent company are Cap and Fish's Cruises in Maine, as well as Buccaneer Pirate Cruises and Southern Star Dolphin Cruises, which are both in Destin, Florida. And uh, we get to hear all about all about the boat tour business. And more, right? And so we and get more. to hear about the boat tour business. Um, like we said, a little bit about buying and selling a business. And one of the things I think is really fascinating is, you know, Sometimes when you think about buying or selling, you know, big businesses, you think of Shark Tank, you think of these, you know, big transactions in, in office buildings and things. But Trish really talks about the emotional part of it and how does this affect the owner that might be selling their business and also the employees that are still there and what that what that transaction looks like and the transformation that happens when there's a, a, a change of ownership. Exactly. So I'd say let's uh, let's set sail with this interview with Trish Higgins. Hey, Trish, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. So excited to chat with you today. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your background and what it is that you do? Sure. So um, I, the most important I like to tell everyone is that I am Canadian. So that's why I'm so nice. <laughs> um, and uh, uh I sort of had a traditional sort of uh, finance, I guess, training uh, right out of college. And in 2015, I went into business with my husband and brother-in-law, which is people either say like, that sounds amazing, or that sounds like the worst thing that I've ever heard. Um, so thankfully for us, it uh, we enjoy working together. So it's been great. Um, and our, our sort of idea was to buy smaller businesses from retiring owners. Um, and to own those companies essentially as a family for the long term. Um, and so we started a firm called Chenmark, which uh, is a made up word. Um, and <laughs> uh, we um, bought our first company in uh, September of 2015. It had nothing to do with tourism, entertainment, nothing to do with that uh, space. It was a commercial landscaping and snowplow or snow removing uh, business. So uh, totally different. Um, but we have built our company up over time um, and look at all sorts of different businesses that we think we could just own for the long term um, and feel comfortable in sort of uh, the sort of steadiness of the business. And so uh, that kind of led us into uh, some boat tour businesses that were right in our backyard uh, because we're based up in Portland, Maine. And uh, we sort of got introduced to the industry um, through the, that acquisition, um, which I ended up leading and have been running that business um, in, since 2020. And uh, we uh, have since bought, we bought one of our competitors up here. Um, and then we also um, have acquired um, two boats down in Florida and have been running that and have been sort of getting more up to speed on the space. So that's basically what we do. We have sort of, I wear two hats. I wear sort of my boat tour hat, uh, half the time. And then the other half is kind of things that aren't as fun as boat tours, you know, like <laughs> landscaping and things like that. Uh, so lots to keep me busy. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating. And, and you know, I'd love to go back even just uh, to the very beginning when you and your husband and your brother-in-law really decided to start a business that buys businesses. <laughs> I got to imagine that that can't 
be very easy. Can you share what that was like or how you just immediately start a business and buy a business? <laughs> yeah. So it's a little meta to, you know, buy a business, that, um, start a business that buys businesses. Um, but we, um, well, it kind of started off is that we had the sort of classic finance training. So we were like working in like, you know, stuff in like the stock markets and the currency market. So nothing actually really to do with businesses or management at all. Um, but we were feeling sort of dissatisfied. Like we didn't feel like we were having like a tangible impact on anything and felt like we wanted to just do something a little different, a little more entrepreneurial kind of, we felt like we were making a lot of PowerPoint slides and like Excel models, but like, what did that actually mean? And so we started in through a couple different ways. Um, we kind of, you know, we heard of somebody who, um, you know, had bought a couple car washes or some laundromats, or we had kind of just heard about some of these, these things kind of through, you know, the grapevine different experiences and um, started thinking, okay, you know, maybe there's something there, maybe there's something we could do on the side. And honestly, like it just started off with like Googling things, like how do I buy a business? And then it turns out there are all these websites out there where people list their businesses for sale and business brokers that work with smaller businesses, um, to bring them to market. And there's this whole sort of ecosystem of sort of small business um, acquisitions that we didn't even really know, it, you know existed. Um, and so it was one of those um, things that was very, it was, it was an idea was very incremental. So it wasn't as if we sat down and you know said, here's this big vision of like what we're gonna do and how we're gonna build it. We had a couple of sort of ideas that we've actually stayed pretty true to, like you know being long-term oriented and then using the cash flows from one business to buy the next business and so on and so forth. Th that, those have been our ideas since the beginning. But when it the, the original idea of buying a small business really came up through sort of ad hoc, you know, you you, you know one person who sort of know something about it, you reach out to them, they talk to you, you learn a little bit, then you look up some stuff online. It was very, very incremental. And when we started the idea, we we're all still working full-time jobs. And it was kind of like an evening and weekend thing. And as it became more like, oh, hey, this is actually a space and we think there's opportunity here and we think this is a real thing, then we became more and more committed. Um, and yeah, found a, through one of those websites, connected with a broker, found this business up in Maine to buy and we're off to the races. So yeah, it's very, uh, the, the whole path has been um, a lot of adventures. So I would have never guessed, you know, in 2013 that I, you know, own a snow removal business in Maine, but that's kind of the world of small business. You never really know where it's going to take you. That's really cool. I love hearing kind of the origin stories of how people got to where they are. And, you know, sometimes it's the path you chose or that you, you thought you were going to, to go on. And this is where I'm going to be in 10 years. And a lot of times it's not. So thank you uh, for sharing that. Uh, you mentioned that Chenmark is a made up name. I'd love to hear the story behind that. Sure. So uh, my uh, husband, James and brother-in-law Palmer, uh, their dad moved around a lot for work and they actually grew up um, in uh, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong um, uh, and Tokyo, anyways, Asia. Um, and so Palmer sort of, uh, when he was sort of 
three or four sort of came of age, they were living in Tokyo. And the sort of phonics when you're hearing Japanese every day is like difficult to sort of match up with the English language. And so there were certain words that he didn't say properly for quite a long time. And so uh, the way he pronounced uh, question mark was Chenmark. And so it sort of became a like internal family joke of, you know, Chenmark is a question mark and sort of signifies kind of I don't know, going into the unknown or something, just kind of like a family joke. And so when we were thinking about starting the company, you know, we don't want to be some sort of generic like Silver Spring or Babbling Brook or, you know, like all of those sort of like generic financy names. So, uh, you know, Chenmark seemed as good as, uh, as any and just went with that. So it's named after a question mark. <laughs> yeah, it's well, probably named after a speech impediment, which Palmer right. doesn't love, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, so you mentioned, you said that you had no initial intention of getting into the tour operating business. So can you talk about what that was like when you, when you did acquire the first, uh, first boat tour and uh, maybe the, the learning curve along the way of being, I would say, in the tourism industry now? Yeah. So, you know, when it came up, it was certainly, I wouldn't say that we like thought, thought we wouldn't get into it. I would just say we, can ne we never even thought about it. Like it wasn't even an industry that was on our radar. Like clearly it's an industry, but for whatever reason, it just, you know, it had never occurred to us as, as a space that might, you know, be interesting to be involved with. Um, and so when the opportunity in um, Maine came up, it was a local business broker who reached out and, you know, we said, you know, th this is interesting. And for us, it's about sort of, buying things where we can feel comfortable about sort of the long-term demand will be there. And so the question was, you know, this isn't some sort of business that has, you know, annual recurring contracts or anything like that, but it's the sort of business where, you know, you're essentially saying, you know, do I think people are going to come to Maine year after year in the summertime and are they going to want to go out in the water? And essentially like as long as people want to do that, um, this company will, you know, continue to do what it can do. And it's never going to grow huge amounts, um, but it can be sort of a, a steady sort of long-term producer. And so that's sort of how we thought about it. And we felt comfortable with saying, yeah, you know what, I think people are going to come to Maine, you know, year after year and go out in the water because that's enjoyable. Uh, and so that's kind of the sort of how we got comfortable with it. Um, of course, you know, that thesis of, of course, everyone's going to come to Maine in the summer and go out in the water. Um, approximately one week after we bought the business, uh, COVID hit, and turns out not everyone's coming to Maine to go out in the water. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, it, it, the, the, the main boat tour business is highly seasonal, obviously. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's really nice out there in February, uh, but not everybody agrees with me. Um, and so we open up in mid-May and we close down in mid-October. So next week will be our, our last week of the season. And really it's, you know, July and August is, you know, the sprint of our season. And uh, when we, so when I acquired the business, you know, there, there really, you know, there's um, a couple employees and, you know, some slow amount of emails and phone calls and sort of set up to do, but it was actually kind of nice because 
you know, I had a fair amount of time to get up to speed on, I didn't know really anything. Um, and so I, it was kind of a luxury to have that time to kind of get to know people and get to speed. And then uh, we were, had a delayed opening because of COVID re restrictions. So we opened about a month late and we had uh, passenger limits. So two of our, we have two boats or had two boats at the time, 149 passengers and state of Maine, we had a 50 person limit um, on, on each boat. And so, you know, at the time, obviously from a financial perspective, you know, that's not great, but our, our focus sort of immediately came to, you know, one, how do we not, or try our best not to lose money in this environment. Um, and two, it, you know, we actually, the first kind of week, nobody really knew what to do. Uh, so we kind of opened and said like, all right, we're running trips and we'll see if anyone shows up. And after about a week, we basically were sold out for the rest of the season, um, which was really, really nice because people were looking for things they could do outside. Um, and so even though we were at 50, limit um it actually wasn't that hard um from like a sales perspective because we spent zero dollars on marketing people just came to us and we didn't really have to do sort of the blocking and tackling of getting people you know in the door um like you might have to do in, in a different environment so that was you know the first season you know at the time was stressful also you know every week there was a different COVID regulation checklist and we had to be sanitizing everything. And, you know, all those things were clearly a, a stressor and the uncertainty wasn't, you know, contributing to, you know, positively. But in retrospect, kind of that first season was way fewer passengers, shorter season, and um, also a new environment for me and our team to go through altogether. So in retrospect, it brought us a lot closer faster because we had to go through this thing together and um you know i think it ended up developing you know really good relationships um that may have been sort of harder to develop in a normal environment um when you're a new person coming in so yeah it's a lot of getting up to speed and you know what the financially um it makes you zero in very quickly on what the sort of key drivers of the business are so when it became clear that COVID was a thing, I really had to focus on, okay, you know, this is the reality that we're in. And then how do we adjust our operations to make money? Um, and so, you know, how, how are we staffing ourselves? What are we charging? What are our sort of fixed costs? You know, all those sorts of things. And so, you know, a lot of the lessons we learned have, have carried um, into, you know, using in, you know, post-COVID years, um, which have, have been really good for the business. So all in all, not great, like most bad things, you know, not great at the time, but in retrospect, learned a lot and it was valuable. So there's a silver lining, which is, uh, which is always nice. And, you know, I'm sure you have much more sophisticated uh, market research, um, uh, you know, tactics than just listening to me. But I was just up in Maine, uh, took a cruise from Quebec to Boston, and we stopped in Portland, stopped in Bar Harbor. Um, and beautiful area, obviously, and I think people are still going to keep coming. So I think I think your 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 sound business judgment was working very well. Um, I appreciate you think I had anything more sophisticated than that. <laughs> it's, like, it's nice here, and I think people will keep coming. There you go. There you go. 
Well, one of the things that I was kind of curious about um, to kind of follow up on, you know, you taking over these businesses from retiring owners, I'm sure that they have, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears into that business. And they've got a lot of heart in that business. And, you know, it may be hard for them to give it up to someone, even if they think you're going to take care of it and you're going to, you know, make it last for a long time. So can you talk through that process a little bit of working with those owners that are retiring and kind of handing over the reins to their, to their baby to you? Yes. So that is a big part of the transaction process for us. And I think that is um, a, a big difference between people who are doing sort of mergers and acquisitions in sort of the bigger business space where it tends to be a lot more impersonal and sort of focused just on the numbers or sort of the sort of points of the transaction sort of thing. And in our experience in the smaller um businesses it is you know people talk about it like their baby you know it's my you know third child or whatever and uh and so there tends to be sort of two factors that kind of come to play it's one there's an emotional attachment to the business um which you have to recognize um and it would be very odd for a small business owner to have spent 20 or 30 years running this business every day and for them not to care about it like that, that would be odd. Um, <laughs> you probably don't want to buy that business. Um, and then uh, the other thing that further complicates it is that um, uh, it's typically the people we work with is their first and only transaction. And it's a very, very important one um, because it, you know, it sort of oftentimes is their retirement plan. And so when you combine sort of new you know, new and unknown experience with a high stakes outcome with an emotional attachment to the asset. Um, you know, we think of ourselves often, I find that I'm playing much more the role of the, like a therapist than sort of a, someone who's doing a financial transaction. Um, and that's okay. I mean, I think it's, it's expected and it's just part of the, you know, part of the world we live in. And I think a big part thing for us is sort of making sure that we develop a relationship with the seller and that they they think that um you know they can talk to us about their issues and um that they can trust us to to do what we say we're going to do um you know i'll admit sometimes it gets a little messy um because you do get you know people who there, there can be all sorts of sort of emotions wrapped up in a transaction that for things that you don't even know are going on in the background, you know, maybe the person's terrified of retiring and what comes on the other side of it, you know, maybe they're getting a divorce, but they don't want to tell you about it. You know, maybe that, you know, like all these things could be going on that you sometimes don't know about. So we, we, we try to be empathetic. Um, and we try like, while also being clear about kind of, this is what we need um, in the process. We find that it's very helpful for um, an owner to have a trusted advisor who has experience in the sort of small business acquisition space um, because they need somebody that they can talk to about what's normal, what's not, a sounding board. Um, and, and we found that the transactions that go the best for us is when a person has um, you know, a lawyer or an accountant or even a broker who is somebody that can kind of help them through the process. Um, and so 
that's certainly important. Um, and then finally, you know, we have found that it can be very hard for an owner to stay on with a role in the business post transaction. You know, obviously it, it can work, but generally speaking, emotionally, it's hard to have somebody sort of coming in um, and doing things a little differently um, and for you not to be in charge and for the employees not to really know who's, you know, who's the, who am I supposed to be listening to? Um, it, it can just be a, a really hard. And so we found that it's, it's best for everybody generally speaking, that when we're working with retiring owners that we, you know, say, you know, hey, you know, we want maybe to keep you on for a period of time to help a transition and to help, you know, uh, introduce us to key clients or learn, you know, certain processes or whatever it may be. But, you know, the plan is for the person to be exiting the business and just available for consulting things, you know, like, I'm having an issue with a customer and I feel like there's a history here and I want to call you and get, get the story. Uh, so those things are important, but um, that emotion is very hard for the owners to stay on in the business post-transaction, I think for a lot of very valid reasons. So with enough kind of reps um, under our belt, we like to sort of do everything we can to set both the business up for success, but also set the sellers up for success where they feel good about what happened in the transaction. Um, and often that can be, um, you know, easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to follow that even further and talk about post-transaction, the employees of the business who had become very comfortable working for the previous owner who now have a new boss, a new working environment, a new dynamic. Uh, what's your approach? I, I, I would say, you know, from a similar standpoint, of making sure that the seller feels comfortable turning over the keys, that the employees feel comfortable, uh, you know, maintaining their employment. Yeah, it's this is a really a hard one, um, and I found that you know we're looking at businesses where, other than the owner who's looking to retire, we're expecting to keep everybody. And, and we're often looking for businesses that have that sort of second layer of, of management who can, you know, understand the business and can make sure operations will keep going and all that sort of stuff. And so it's, um, we found that sort of, you know, you announce a transaction and most times the, the sellers, so the owner doesn't want to tell the employees about the transaction until it actually, you know, goes through. So it's usually a surprise. Um, and most people aren't good with surprises. Um, and the, the feel on that first day is sort of, everyone's looking around saying like, am I going to get fired? And, um, we're basically nervous cause we're like, please don't quit. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's an, it's awkward sort of the post transaction sort of introduction to employees is awkward is an awkward experience and so I've just sort of embraced that because the reality is is they don't know you and the only way that they're going to get to know you and trust you is by you sort of showing up and doing things the right way like every day for a period of time and you can't rush that and so um, we usually just come in and say you know hey this is what you know we're trying to do um, and one big thing that we found works well is um, we have noticed that 
after a transaction happens and you have a new boss, um, all of a sudden everybody's underpaid and needs a raise. It happens pretty much like clockwork on every transaction we've ever done. Uh, so, you know, it kind of transaction closes, the leader then kind of group meeting and then maybe spends a week sitting down with everybody individually, talking to them about what they think is going well, what they think could be improved, you know, all those things. And typically in those conversations, you know, everybody says like, you know, I, I was supposed to get a raise, whatever, last year I didn't get one or whatever it might be. Um, and so we like to, um, something we found that goes well um, is to just sort of be upfront with everyone to say, listen, I'm new to the business and I'm not making any decisions on compensation for pick a time frame, 90 days, you know, and just to buy yourself a little bit of time because it's entirely possible that somebody is underpaid and they should be getting a raise. Um, and it's also possible that they're not. Um, and in your first week, you have no way of knowing that. And so I think that we found that it can be work really well, both for us and the employees, if we just set expectations on, you know, this is how this is going to go. And I'm not going to make any major decisions on compensation or strategy or pricing or whatever. I'm just going to spend time getting up to speed in the business. And then this is the important part. After 90 days, I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to tell you about, you know, what the next steps are. Um, and so it's, there's, it's, the whole thing is more of an, an art than a science. I think it, it involves a fair amount of EQ to get through. I think we certainly aren't perfect at it. Um, and, uh, you know, in every situation, there's always something I do that I regret. And I'm like, ah, oh, that really didn't go well for me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, hopefully we're getting a little bit better after each transaction we do. And um, but the employee thing, I mean, it's very natural for people to be concerned um, with a new owner coming in. Um, and so we try to have empathy for that and then just sort of, um, you know, focus on moving forward and go from there. Yeah. Trish, I'm wondering if we can look at this from the potential seller's point of view just for a second, right? You've got somebody that, you know, maybe they have a family entertainment center or a tour business and they're thinking, my exit strategy maybe is five or 10 years down the road or whatever. They don't even know, am I going to retire? Am I going to, what am I going to do? I've built this business. What could they or should they be doing to kind of prepare for the eventuality especially if they're not going to close the business, but if they want it to continue, like what are some of those things they can kind of be thinking of to prepare for that transaction? Yeah, so that's really important. Um, I've actually done a couple of talks at conferences about this because in my own sort of very selfish, it's, you know, it's not so much, you know, come tell me you want to sell your business right now. It's more, hey, you might want to sell in five years. So here's some things you should start doing now so that you set yourself up for success. Um, I'd say the first and most important thing is having um, what I would call clean financial statements. And by clean financial statements, I mean financial statements that, you know, a third party that doesn't really know your business could look at and understand what's going on. Um, it's not that it's, it's not that difficult to do um, if you, are willing to work with an accountant or somebody like that to help is basically just categorizing things in the right way. Um, and, and, and because it's hard for somebody to know 
what your business is worth because we're talking about a financial transaction so you have to agree on a price and if in your head you say my business is worth 10 million dollars it may be or it may not be and without some sort of financials to back it up so you can share those readily with a potential buyer um, you're probably not going to get the price you want um, and so things that i see a lot are uh, personal expenses being run through the business, which pretty much every small business owner does. Uh, I, you know, I get it. Um, and there's sort of a, a great sort of area here where everyone's running some level of personal expenses through the business. But if you're running egregious amounts of personal expenses through, then it starts to feel a little icky. And it's kind of like, you know, if you're getting the um, advantage of not paying taxes essentially on um, while you're running the business like that's your prerogative you know do you do whatever you want to do um but you're probably not going to get the full value for your business when you go to sell because you can't have it both ways mm. so probably time to start cleaning cleaning that up a bit or at the very least having very good documentation so you, so you can substantiate those claims um and then the second one is cash transactions so I sometimes will look at a business and they'll say, you know, their, their tax returns will say, I'll just make it up. They make 2 million of revenue, let's say, based on their tax returns. And they're like, well, you know, we actually make 2.2 million of revenue, but 200,000 of it is just in cash. And like, we just kind of keep it off the books. And that's very common, especially in boat tours and, you know, st stuff where cash changes hands, especially if there's a bar, things like that. And um, that may very, you know, may be true. Um, but a potential buyer just has no idea whether it is true or it's not true. And so they can't pay you for it. Um, because they just, you know, maybe it's $400,000 of cash sales, or maybe it's none. And so how do you put a price on that? And there's uncertainty. So a buyer is just gonna sort of discount that. And so I'd say making sure that you are recording your cash transactions so that you actually can get paid for it. That's sort of, those are like the two things on the financial side of things. So three, clean financials, which includes keeping track of personal expenses um, so you can at least substantiate them. And then having a, a tracking cash sales. Um, so essentially like both of those can be categorized as paying taxes, so sorry. Um, and then um, the, the, the second sort of non-financial piece of it is gonna be, is there anybody else in your business that knows what's going on? And because I'll talk to a lot of businesses where my takeaway is like, this isn't really like a business, this is just like a guy running some boat tours, you know? Cause if you're the one person who does literally everything in your business, which a lot of smaller businesses, that's just the nature of it, right? Um, but if you're the only person and you're leaving because you want to retire, then the buyer isn't really buying a business, like, because there's not really much there. And so if you're at a certain size, so if that's your situation, then the reality is you're likely not going to sell for very much, or you're just going to sell for the value of your assets. Um, and if you're a little bit bigger and that's what you're, you're doing, then you need to start thinking probably 
at minimum three years out, how do I hire in some other people who can start to, you know, develop expertise in this so that if I can, you know, it's not like they have to do everything, um, but there has to be some other people in the business who can basically help a new buyer get up to speed. Um, so those are, those are the big things that I like tell people, if you're thinking about buying five years out, these are the things you should be thinking about now. Mm. That's really good advice. Thank you so much for, for sharing all that. I uh, would love to switch gears just a little bit and uh, kind of talk about things from, from the lens of the guest experience. And, and particularly uh, in that uh, you came into this industry, you know, you know, the, the landscaping company before that and the finance background before that. Would love to know as far as maybe some, some lessons that you've picked up along the way from a hospitality or customer service or guest experience standpoint that perhaps you didn't know before, but are now very much woven into the culture of your operations. Sure. When I was in high school, I was a receptionist at a spa and I feel like that was the best corollary yeah. to the current experience. Um, but I think, you know, for the boat tours, we're dealing with everybody who's on vacation. And sometimes vacation brings out the best of people, but sometimes it brings out the worst of people, especially when it's like hot and you've got your three sticky kids in the back of the car and you're late and you can't find parking, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and uh, so I think the, the customer experience, you know, the biggest thing I've learned is that that's helped us is you know, how do you, de you will inevitably, no matter what you do, and I think it's fascinating because we can have the same tour and one person can think it's amazing and one person can think that you're the devil because you made them go through it, you know? And so one is making sure that emotionally you're not overreacting to the negatives because I think that when I first got in, I had a little bit of like a sort of like a whipsaw kind of, you know, like, you're like, oh, this person, like, you know, said this thing, and they were really angry. And so like, we need to do something about that. And then like, that person said that, and you're kind of like running around, um, sort of responding in a reactionary way to people who like have complaints. And, you know, human nature is that you tend to discount the good stuff and, you know, overthink the bad stuff. And, uh, I think I realized I got some feedback from a teammate because I kept being like, oh, like maybe we should like do this or, you know, and it was sort of like, no, like what we need is like, these are our procedure. Like these are our um, sort of guidelines and our policies and we've thought through them and like, we're just, we're going to stick to what the policies are and, you know, broadly speaking, like we're not going to change our policies just because one person had a bad experience. We're going to give it time to play out. And if it's something that happens over and over and over again, and it's something we can change, then we'll think about it, but not sort of reacting to just like the one really, really angry customer. Because I've looked at it. I know how many people go on our trips and then I know how many people give reviews. And I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's like 5% of people who go on our trips, give reviews. Like, I don't know, something like that. And then so then like of the people who give us negative reviews of all of our reviews is like, you know, a very small percentage of our overall reviews. And so then it's sort of like, am I really going to create policies based on what 0.5% of our customers think, or at least think 
strongly enough to put into words. Like, you know, kind of calibrating policies and as well as sort of emotional bandwidth to negative reviews and kind of trying to create more of like a systems thinking approach to the customer experience. I think is something I definitely learned in that first year. And I think we've been much better at it. It's much better for all of our guest services team when they're like, no, like these are our policies and we're not just, you know, well, this person was really, really angry. So we're going to do something completely different for them than we did for like that nice couple from Nebraska, you know? And so um, I think that's been one of the biggest sort of customer experiences, sort of learnings that I've had um, since we bought the company. So Trish, I'd love to dive into one specific area because it actually happened when uh, my friends and I were, were on this cruise and some took a whale watching tour and didn't see any whales, right? So none of them were really disappointed or anything. It was a nice boat ride. Um, but I'm curious, like you are counting on nature to create this spectacle for people. And if they don't do it, it's just a nice boat, boat ride. So um, is that one of those situations where some people will come back and say, nice boat ride. And some people are like, I want my money back. So I'm just curious, like how you handle some of those situations. Yes. So, uh, that definitely happens and it's really hard. Cause it's like, you know, if the whales are there, we're going to find them, but if they're not there, they're not there and they're migratory. So like, we're going to see humpbacks when they're swimming North and then we're going to see them when they're swimming back, but we're not going to see them in the middle. We're going to see other types of whales unless they're also migrating. <laughs> um, and so it, it is hard. And it's also, um, we, we have really good data on where we see whales and whens and what time, you know, all that sort of stuff. And as far as we can tell, it's pretty, like, generally speaking, it's random. Like sometimes September's really good. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, you know, so it's, there's no like, what's a good time for seeing humpbacks? Cause it's like, kind of depends on when they decide to come south. Yeah, like, you know, and so, which is, has a lot of factors that go into that. Um, so, you know, we try to be transparent. We don't guarantee seeing a whale. Do people read that? Like, no, obviously not. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and, and then it is certainly our experience where um, you go out, you don't see a whale. Half the people are like, that was a great boat ride, like too bad, but like, whatever, I had a beer on a boat and rode around for a couple hours and like, that was great. Um, and then some people are super angry, right? So we offer standby tickets. So basically a ticket to come back and go on a whale watching trip or one of our other, um, any of our other trips, essentially, mm -hmm. um, as the whale watch, well, any of our trips of equal or lesser value, which is essentially pretty much all of our other trips. And uh, um, again, some people are like, this is incredible. I can't believe you do this. Like, amazing. You're the best company in the world, right? And then some other people who tend to speak a little louder um, are like, I'm from whatever, Texas, and I'm never coming back to this state. And like, this is useless. And like, I hate you. Um, and so again, it kind of goes back to the, the process. So it's sort of, you know, we give everybody a standby ticket. You're welcome to come back and use it. In theory, if you want to give it to someone else, like you can do that too. And, you know, we're sorry if you live somewhere else. When people call us on the phone, one thing we've instructed people to do is say, you know, if you're going to be here in town for a couple of days, we recommend doing the whale watch on the first day. Because then if you 
don't see a whale, then you have an opportunity to go the next day or go on a different trip for free or all those sorts of things. Um, and so we try, but again, it kind of is an inevitability that like there will be trips where we don't see whales and like there will be upset customers. And so I think when it goes to, you know, honestly, like people aren't really calling and yelling at me, right? They're walking up to the ticket booth at the end of, you know, unless I'm in it, which I'm not as much now as I was, you know, before, um, you know, they're yelling at that person. So like that person is the person I feel really bad for. And that's the person who, you know, is going to say, well, I can get you on a trip tomorrow or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but that it's a hard one, but at least we've realized that we're proud of what we do and, um, try to be, um, you know, consistent with how we treat customers. Cause it's, it was interesting because some of our people get really upset when we provide exceptions because they're sort of like, you know, they felt that it was, it was wrong to give the person who yells the loudest the refund because they said like, that's not fair to all the other people who had the same experience and maybe you're disappointed, but they're just not as extroverted or mean about it. Um, and so I thought that was interesting feedback I never really thought of. Um, but that's why we, we try to talk about now is sort of, you have an angry customer for not seeing a whale or something. You know, if you give them a refund, it's not fair to all the other people who, you know, didn't even ask for one if they wanted it. So I don't know. It's hard though. Yeah. It's hard. It grinds on people uh, for sure. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. Especially, especially for the staff member who's getting yelled at that if they see that, oh, there was actually recovery implemented for that, that like that can sting for that staff member. I've seen that happen many yeah. times and it can be really hard to, to disassociate from the, the emotion from the actual circumstance. And in some cases that recovery, sometimes it just gets the guests to be quiet and everyone actually wins from it. Right. Yeah. And and I love that recovery that you put in place for it because with that standby ticket, the boat's going to go out whether it's whether it's full or it's empty. May as well fill the seat, try to get some ancillary, you know, bar revenue on it or things like that. And for the guest, hopefully they feel I get a free tour out of this. And it was because I I spoke up. It was genuine, regardless of their tone, whatever it was. And yeah. and the business showed that commitment to want to make it right to me. Um, and so it, it hopefully gets them to come back and hopefully turns into that positive review online. Yeah. Uh, we only have a, a few minutes left. This is uh, uh, this is just absolutely flown by here, but uh, would love to know what's the best part of what you get to do every day? Ooh, um, well, there's two, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of cheat. There's two. One is I love that my days are highly varied. So I think that anybody who's working in a small business setting you know, it's not like you're just like sitting in some like fancy corner office, like, you know, kind of looking at reports all day or anything like that. You know, I think I get to do a really wide variety of things, um, which I find interesting. I like that. Um, so I like, you know, oh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of financial analysis we have to do, but like, then we have to deal with an employee issue. And then like, let's think about like how we might do training a little different. And then there's a one-star review of someone who hates us and got to think about, okay, you know, how do we respond and how do we, um, and then like, is what, I always like to look at the reviews as like, is what they're saying, like, is there anything in here that is like feedback on something that's serious that we need to pay attention to, things like that. So highly varied, I love that. Um, 
the second part is that kind of related to the varied is um, that I just get to meet like a lot of just interesting people from all sorts of backgrounds and interests and all sorts of stuff. So I kind of love the, what I, we call internally like the texture of our lives in terms of just meeting, you know, gotten to meet a bunch of captains, I got to meet a bunch of naturalists, you know, like I, you know, have no background in marine biology and have met some people who just know, you know, incredible amounts about, you know, whales and birds and see, you know, all this sort of stuff. And like, that's incredible to me. Um, and so being able to just meet a lot of different types of people and be inspired by them is, is very cool. Very cool. So Trisha, I just have to ask, because now you're in the tourism business, right? When you go maybe on vacation with your, with your family and things like that, do you look at tourism a little differently now? Definitely. Definitely. I always like appreciate when someone upsells me a little bit. Um, I'm like, oh, you, you know, you, uh, you got me here. Um, and then I definitely, you know, I was, um, I, I see things more, you know, I'm like, oh, like, look like that ATV tour company, like, oh, I wonder how much they charge and how many, how many, you know, vehicles do we think they have? And like, what sort of, you know, I bet that's a really good business, you know? And so definitely see things. Um, and uh, from more of a, my eyes are like a little more open to like, oh, this is a cool business, you know? And I also have a lot more empathy for um, bad experiences, I'd say. Um, and an example, I went um, on, uh, we were out in uh, California, we went on a whale watch and the person, uh, they were saying, you know, whales aren't guaranteed. And we actually didn't see whales on that trip and they were very apologetic. And I was like, you know what, like, we're good. I get it. Don't worry. Because they were like, I swear there are whales out here. Like we, we see them, you know, we didn't just take you out. And I'm like, I, I get it. Don't worry. So I, uh, yeah, I think I, I, it feels a little bit more personal now. Um, and it's fun. So you didn't want to test their service recovery. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I, sometimes I feel like I should like get angry and ask for things, but I just don't have the heart to. I'm not that. <laughs> I'm the person who's like, oh, that was a bummer. Like, I guess I lost that money. I'll just move on with my life. <laughs> well, like you said, you're Canadian, so you're super nice. So exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, Trish, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Really loved all the things that you got to share with us. If people wanted to know more about Chenmark or your tours or even how to get in touch with you, where would you send them? Sure. So uh, best place is probably Chenmark uh, website, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K.com. Uh, and Trish at Chenmark kind of is where all of my emails funnel to anyways. So Trish at Chenmark.com. Um, we also write a weekly newsletter. Uh, uh, it's, I think, great. Uh, just about uh, sort of small business leadership and management and sort of motivation and stuff like that. So it's, it's intended to reach a broad audience. And I know a lot of people kind of use it sort of uh, as things to share with their teams for talking points and stuff like that. So you can sign up on our website. Um, I think that is a pretty high, high quality uh, newsletter. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I don't do like social media really because I just don't have the time. So I, you might reach out and I probably won't respond. <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't check it. <laughs> 
Excellent. Well, Trish, we will uh, put all those links that you shared. Uh, we'll put those in the show notes so people can access those easily. And uh, we really appreciate your time today. And uh, this is just such a fascinating conversation. So thank you so much for joining us. And for everyone out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.